Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are coming to the end of the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus. Uh, and so we are in the final two parshiot of Exodus, uh, which are Vayakel and Pikudei. They are generally read together. You'll recall we have four uh, parshiot that are usually read together. But when we add a leap month, this a second Adar, when we add a second Adar to rectify the, the lunar and solar calendars, then we add four weeks. We're adding a month. We're adding 28 days. So when we do that, we need four extra Shabbases. Um, worth of material to read, right? So four extra Shabbatot get added to the calendar, and so we break up those parshiot that we usually read together, and we gain four Torah portions for four Shabbatot. Okay, so so generally these are read together, and we've been dealing a lot in the instructions to build the Mishkan. So the rabbis have a bit of a a bit of a question about if the people with the golden calf have sinned so badly that now God sees their Amksheorif, a stiff necked people, and what does God threaten to do because of that? Smite them. Wipe them out and start again with Moshe. To start to build a new nation from Moshe. So God threatens to wipe them out. Had God wiped them out, would there have been a Mishkan? That's an interesting question. Good. Yay. Glad it was an interesting question. Like, So if there was no Jewish people, would there be a Mishkan? So one could argue, well, Moshe had gotten the instructions. Then Moshe comes down and sees what's going on. Right? tears up the contract, begs God's forgiveness because God's going to wipe the people out. Moshe intervenes, begs God's forgiveness. God relents. God forgives the people, destroys the people involved. Let's be clear. Those people are killed. But but everybody else, God forgives and, and reseals the deal with a second set of tablets. In that interim... Is it understood that if God destroys the people, the people that God's going to make from Moshe are going to make the Mishkan? In other words, there hasn't been the instruction to build it. There's the, I mean, there's the, there's the instructions to build it. There's not been the commandment to build it yet. Here are the instructions. Very detailed instructions. Very detailed instructions. And, um, and, and that's kind of where we're at. Then there's the golden calf. Then the people are forgiven. And then we get to this week's Parsha. So the rabbis have lots of questions. One is, when are they supposed to build this Mishkan? Number two, if the instructions were given, is there still a green light to build the Mishkan after the golden calf? Right? The situation's changed. God gives the instructions for the Mishkan, and then the people do what they do. God's kind of done with them. Then God forgives them. But is there is there still the green light for a Mishkan? And for the rabbis, the other question is, There is no early or late in Torah. It is not a history book. God forbid. It is revelation. It is truth in all kinds of ways for all kinds of time, for eternal time. And so you can take pieces of Torah and move them around. It is not a history book. Therefore, I can take this chunk and put it over here, and this chunk and put it over here, and read it that way and see what that tells me. That's an interesting project. And because it's all revelation, it's all the eternally true word of the divine, it's a new insight. It's a new, it's a new part of revelation when I mix things up and read them that way. The rabbis want very much to David's point that we made weeks ago, the rabbis very much want to play with the idea that the instructions to build the Mishkan happen after the golden calf incident. 
they very much want to cut and paste these sections. Why? What is that instinct about? We've gotten the instructions, then we get the golden cap, and now we're going to see the actual building of the Mishkan. Why do the rabbis want to switch the instructions and the golden calf episodes? What is that instinct about? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. It's uh, you know, it's it, it's a better narrative. It's fall and redemption. It's what? It's fall and redemption. You know what I mean? It, it's they sinned and now they're okay. Redemption is about slavery. Uh, well, Let's be very clear. It, it's it shows improvement, as they say in kindergarten. Um, so, but what does that mean about switching the switching them back so that the golden calf. Golden calf happens first, right. then the instructions to build the Mishkan. Why do, why would, what's the instinct for the rabbis to want to switch though, to make the golden calf first and then the Mishkan? It's tshuva, isn't it? Huh? That's what I'm saying. It's sort of tshuva. It's a way to, you sinned and now here's how you're going to fix that. Okay. So that you're saying the, the instinct is the rabbis want to understand the instructions to build the Mishkan to be about tshuva for the golden calf. Well, God's already, God forgives them either way. God forgives them after the golden calf. They're forgiven. Why do the rabbis want to monkey with instructions, calf? They're if, forgiven. If the instructions come first and God said build a mishkan, and they not only don't build a mishkan, but instead they build a golden calf, that's really double bad. All right, so that's double bad. So the rabbis want to what? Prevent the Jewish people from having a double bad? It just reflects real bad. It just reflects really it's badly. Bad it's bad for the Jews, says Bert. All right, but remember, the people have not gotten the instructions to build the Mishkan yet. They're still up there with Moses. When they do the calf, they've not heard anything about a Mishkan. They have no idea about a Mishkan. It just might make God look bad in the storyline. It might make God look bad. Why? And the rabbis, because he didn't get the order right. He, he did not let the people. He did not let the people know about the Mishkan ah. before they went, to, you know, to build the uh, calf. So maybe God should have known that this people who was used to a certain set of images and a certain way of expressing relationship to divine powers, that that God should have known that they needed the Mishkan idea to prevent them proactively from doing something else, from building something else, okay? My uh, very close is that you needed a concrete substitute uh, in this case, for what? For, uh, for the golden calf, a symbol, a physical structure, but this one would be empty so that God could enter it. So, substitute. So, so why does that mean the instructions have to follow the golden calf incident? If, if God knows from the beginning, they need. They need something physical. God, God's giving Moshe the instructions for that. Then they have the calf. Then they're forgiven. Why? Why do the? What is your point about why the rabbis want to switch those? A substitute. That instead of the calf. Instead of the calf, they're going to have the mishkan. So along the lines of what David said, that's not what you do. This is what you do. So this is your tshuva for doing that. Is building this. Okay. So for all of these reasons. The rabbis really want to switch those. And some of our most famous commentators do switch them. They say, read them the other way. And then they have their explanations, right? And their, the thing, the conclusions they come to, right? Having, having done that. We're going to look at a few of those. But I just want you to have that always there as we read this stuff, that there is a very long history of instinct wanting to switch the order. And then what happens if you switch the order? So just play with that as we're, as we're thinking um, through this. We'll look, like, like I said, at a few of those commentaries. But for the most part, we're not going to go to like, here's what happens if you read it this way. Here's what happens if, if you read it that way. We, instead, we're just going to read knowing that that's there. This, this switcheroo instinct is there. And we're going to read, um, the, but we are going to read these in light of each other. 
Most commentators say one cannot understand nor read the Mishkan material on either side of the golden calf, the instructions and the building. You cannot read that without reading it in light of the story of the golden calf. They are they are intertwined. They are related. Those of us who accept that this is written by people understand that this is a brilliant literary technique to, to really talk about physically in this world what is our relationship to representations, right, of knowing that we need them, where are those limits, where are those lines, where do we go wrong, where do you go, we go off the rails, um, and, and what should we be um, working towards in, in that area of physical stuff and relationship to divinity. Just for clarity, and I'm, I'm probably wrong about this, the golden calf is like sandwiched in between. Like there's a Correct. S- so, so Instructions and building. So there's, an, no, but if I'm right, there's instructions, calf, more instructions. No, there's oh. instructions, calf, doing it. Oh, oh, okay. So Pakuti is doing it, really. Yes. Okay, as opposed to instructions. Okay. Yes. Right. So we get the instructions, then we get the calf, then we get, here's what happened, right? With all those things. Okay, we good? All right. Yes, we're good. Okay. So let's look then at, oh, I don't think I loaded it up. I usually do this. Okay. No problem. Oh. Oh, We're in Exodus 35. All right, Exodus 35, we're at the beginning of Vayakhel. All right, thirty-five one. All right, well, actually, let's go. Let's go a little bit before. We're going to go to thirty-four, thirty-four twenty-nine. Let's start there. So you get a little bit of the the ending of the the parsha before, because remember, parshiot are not Jewish. Chapters are not Jewish. Um, so for us, like, it's just kind of. Right, one big text, one big story. So let's look at what happens right before where we're going to start. So Moshe comes down from Sinai, and when Moshe comes down holding the luchot ha'edut, the, the tablets of witness, Moshe was not aware that the skin of his face was right, well, <laughs> right, I don't love this translation, but, um, so, lo yada, he didn't know, ki karon o, karan or panav, there were rays of light coming from his face, bidabro ito, in his having spoken with God. So the, Effect of Moshe hanging out on Sinai, getting the rest of Torah, the rabbis want to say, um, but we could say the second set, at least we know from this text, the second set, the rabbis want to say it's the whole Torah, whatever. So whatever's happening for Moshe for 40 days while he's up there, it affects him in a way that now there are rays of light streaming from his face. And apparently they're very, very bright. Because Aaron and the Israelites saw that the skin of Moses' face was a bunch of rays of light, and they shrank from coming near him. But Moshe called to them, and Aaron and all the chieftains in the assembly returned to him, and Moshe spoke to them. 
Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he instructed them concerning all that Yudhe had imparted to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moshe finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moshe went in before God to converse, he would leave the veil off until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, the Israelites would see how radiant the skin of Moshe's face was. Moshe would then put the veil back over his face and went until he went to speak with God. So Moshe is transformed in some way that now makes him essentially unapproachable without this veil. So really, the people, if you think about it, the people never see Moshe's face again after after this. So if you think about where we just were and what was happening, what did we suggest the calf might have been a substitution for? Moses, not God. If we go with that reading, the golden calf was a replacement for Moses, their transitional object, who's up on Sinai so they can't see him. And he's been up there long enough that they can't tolerate holding that he's there without seeing him. And you, so they're not able to use him as their transitional object. So they freak out. They want a representation of Moshe who brought us up. Remember how time, many times we read that phrase? Who brought us up from the land of Egypt, right? If God forgives the sin of the golden calves, but punishes them for it, right? Takes, you know, destroys anybody who was involved with it. For me, this is one of the consequences of the sin of the Egal Zahav. You want to see Moshe? And Moshe is so important to you that if he's gone for 40 days, y'all are going to do stuff that y'all know y'all are not supposed to do because you need to see Moshe? Guess what? You're done seeing Moshe. I'll give him back to you, but you're never going to see him again. Don't get to, don't get, don't slide back into, you got Moshe back, and so all your problems are solved because you have your transitional object back. Uh-uh. You don't get to have one. You are in relationship to me. And you need to figure out how to do that. So... I'm going to give him back to you, but <laughs> there's now going to be right a veil between Moshe and y'all because of me. So the word Karan that we're translating as rays, um, some folks have translated as what? Horns. Horns. Hence... Your horned Moses statue, and hence, some want to say this is what leads to Jews in general have horns. But probably that's not where this comes from. Probably that comes from uh, tying uh, Jews to Satan. Another interpretation? Another interpretation, says Laura Diamond. Just, just that what struck me, because I don't think I've ever seen that verse before, was that Moses was so changed by his experience of God that that's where the – I didn't take it as, well, God's really going to punish those people by having to make Moses veil. It was more like, wow, Moses is so altered in such an elevated, radiant way by his encounter with God that he has to, the people shrink from him. It's so unusual. It's almost like he's becoming closer to God, but he didn't get destroyed by it. But because of that, the veil has to happen just to protect them, just to allow them to come close to him again. So it didn't feel like a, a punishing vibe for me. It was more like a, um, it, it may end up with the same result, which is that they still have to work through Moses to get to God, but it was more of like Moses. Moses is not the same Moses anymore. Yeah, I like mine better, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and I, they're not mutually exclusive. Moshe is clearly changed by the experience. All I'm saying is that didn't have to happen. He didn't have to be changed by it. So. Encounter with God. He's been. He was up there forty days and forty nights, and it didn't happen. So all of a sudden, forty days and forty nights, he comes down, and his face is not radiant. Okay. So this is a different time coming. This is a different time coming down. This is after he's gone up the second time. I have to believe there is some connection. Just. Me, the literary person, sees a connection between y'all were so desperate for Moshe, right? Well, now he is transformed into something you don't get access to. And I'm not saying it's a punishment. I'm saying God doesn't want this to happen again. God doesn't want to destroy the people. God does not want them to screw up like that again. So God removes Moshe from being somebody they can... Uh, grab onto, attached to, instead of trying to move towards being able to be in, in relationship to God. George? Another interpretation might be one can't see the face of God, and now God is putting a, a veil mask on uh, Moses, so maybe Moses is another God. Well, it's just a little bit about what we're suggesting, that that's how the people feel. The people have made Moshe into something that that God realizes is problematic. Yes, but I'm, what I'm saying is putting the mask on makes God a, like most makes Moses like God. You can't see his face, so that God helps in this interpretation. So then, what? what so what does that mean then? That Moses is divine. So I'm not sure. I don't know what that means. Yeah. So what? But what, what I hear you saying is Moshe, by definition, now is more like God in that people can't see his face either. So I I was just trying to go to the implications of that because that's where I always want to go. Okay. I always want to go to okay. Well, what does that mean then? Right. All right. So this is what. So Moshe tells them what he's got to tell them. Then he. Veils himself, and then he, except when he's speaking with God, and then when he comes out again, he he veils again when he's around the people. All right, so now we're going to go to chapter thirty-five. Um, I don't know if this is really relevant. If it's not, please stop me. But um, from a purely psychological point of view, um, I th- I think that um, a much more appropriate way of understanding what has happened is that there is a splitting process going on so that there's a representation of Moses as being all bad. He can't be looked at. He can't be approached. He's no longer a valuable object. And that the golden calf, there's a regression to a much earlier uh, kind of relationship with a tangible good object. And uh, that... uh, um, you know how that how that comports with uh, a uh, an interpretation that is more in keeping with the theological aspects. I don't know, but I think psychologically, it's very clearly a matter of regression and splitting. Okay. Okay. So thirty-five-one. Uh, Moshe. At Kol Adat Bnei Israel. So again, we are seeing this verb, this verb that is based on Kuf He Lamed, Kahal. What's a Kahal? A community. So this is the verb of that. So what would you, huh? He communityed, Moshe communityed the whole community. Right? So he communityed the whole community of Israel, and says to them, here, here are the things God has commanded to do them. Six days will you work, but on the seventh day you shall have a Shabbat of complete rest to Yudhevavheh. Whoever does any work on it, Yep. 
You shall kindle no fire throughout your settlements on the Sabbath day. All right. Some folks want to say this is a very odd start to what Moshe is talking about. To start with, hey, y'all, come here. I've got some really important stuff to tell you. Six days will you work, and one day you're not going to work, and you're not going to make any fire. Okay. So there are reams of commentary written on why does this begin with Shabbat. So we are going to look at that tomorrow together at the Women's Day of Learning and Reflection. We're not looking at that today. Okay. So I know now y'all wish you were coming. All right. So by Yomer Moshe, I'll call it that. But Israel, so Moshe says to the entire people of Israel, This is the thing that God commanded saying. Didn't we just have that? These are the things that God commands that we do them. And then we get this whole business of Shabbat. And then we get Moshe said to the people, this is the thing God has commanded. Let's say, first of all, Department of Redundancy Department. Uh-huh. Like, we don't have that in Torah. So this is obviously like saying something else other than Moshe was just saying, here's what we're supposed to do. So, again, lots of commentary written on we have these are the things and we get Shabbat. And then we get here's the thing. And now we're getting, no, that was, these are the things. Then we get Shabbat. Now we get a statement, this is the thing. Okay. What is the thing? The thing is, take from yourselves truma, uh, a gift to Yudhe Vavhe. Kol Nadiv Libo, everyone whose heart is so moved, right? It's got to be voluntary of heart. And you will bring it, this truma, which is feminine. So you shall bring her, literally. You shall bring it to Adonai. What what can it be of? Zahav bechesef unachoshet. Gold, silver, and copper. Utchelet v'argaman and v'tola atshani v'sheshet izim. So you can, these colors... You can bring and um, and then fine linen and goat's hair, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins, and acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and for the aromatic incense, lapis lazuli, and other stones for setting for the ephod and the breastpiece. And all y'all who are chacham lev. What is chacham? What is lev? So what do you translate this to mean? So all y'all who are wise of heart, yavo'u. Y'all come. Y'all are going to make everything that God commanded. Etamishkan. The Mishkan, Ohalo, its tent, Mirsehu, its coverings, its clasps, and its planks, its bars, its posts, and its sockets. Blah, blah, blah. The ark, the pole, the utensils, the bread of his way, the lampstand, the altar, blah, blah, blah. This is everything y'all are going to come forward now and make. The hangings, the pegs, blah, blah, blah. The priestly vestments. And the whole community leaves from in front of Moshe. And so who came forward? Everybody whose heart was uplifted. And everyone who was Nadav Ruach, who was a voluntary spirit. These are different terms now. We're getting different terminology here, but obviously somehow related, right? Hey, view at Trumat Adonai So they brought the Trumat, these gifts for Yod for the work of the Ohel Moed, for the work of the tent of meeting. 
and for all of its service and Levig de Hakodesh and for the sacred garments. And so came men and women, Kol Nadiv Lev, everyone who was a voluntary heart. So notice how many times Torah is hammering Nadiv Lev. One of our commentaries is going to ask, what's, what's up with that? So they bring, right, all of these things. Um, they brought all this kind of jewelry, all this gold. Tnufat Zahav Adonai. So a tnufah is like a wave offering. So they bring this as an offering to God. And we get a description of all the other beautiful stuff that they're bringing. And every woman who was chokhmat lev, who was wise of heart in her hands. Um, spun with her own hands and brought what they'd spun. So, so chokhmat lev seems to be something about gifted. This is very clear that this is gifted with one's hands in spinning. So people who are very good at making garments or making cloth out of the yarn that was the gift. And all the women whose, whose, uh, hearts were uplifted with wisdom, they spun the goat's hair. So we are getting in particular that women were involved in a lot of the artisanry of making the Mishkan. And the hoo-ha hoo-ha people brought, <laughs> that's the technical translation, lapis lazuli and other stones for setting, for the ephod and the breast piece and the spice, all the expensive stuff, right? And um, the, so the Israelites, everyone asher nadav libam, everyone whose heart was, right, moved or was volunteering, did all of this stuff. And then we're going to get um, Betzal El and Aholiab, and we're going to get blah, 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 until we get to, right, the end, which is them making all of this stuff, okay? So going on through chapter 36, 37, we're getting all of the um, actual doings of all of this stuff. You can look in your book, look at 38. All of this is what's happening until we get to the second Parsha, that we read, which is Piku Dei, um, and that ends with the actual uh, erection of the Mishka. Moses is directing everybody with God's words to, on about how to build the Mishkan and what to bring. Uh-huh. Who directed them to build the calf? I mean, did Aaron didn't. Did, I mean, who was there telling how to build so the So compare calf? those. Moshe directs and instructs about the calf. I mean, about the Mishkan. The Mishkan, yeah. So we're going to look a little bit at some of the commentary. I want to go back to what Dana was saying. So one place we see, because I always want to point out the parallels in those stories. You're lifting up something that's missing. Who gave the instructions for the calf? It seems the people who came to Aaron had an idea and said, make us, right? Make us a God. That's all we know. What is Aaron's explanation for why a calf? It just popped out of the fire. I just threw their stuff in and it just popped out. There's a need to have a person there to, a face of a person to give the directions. Like people need, even if God's giving the directions, you still need a person to direct it or a community. Or So I think that's significant. So we're not sure. We're not sure whose idea the calf was. We don't know. We're not told. That's what's missing. We are not given that. We're not given a story about instructions. It's, it's kind With of, the calf. And maybe part of, okay, I'm coming. Maybe part of the point is y'all didn't get instructions. And this is what happens when people don't listen to the authorities who have an idea about what's a good idea and what's maybe not such a good idea, right? Anarchy. 
don't know. But it, we, we don't get instructions at all with the calf. <laughs> it looks bad. Lee? Not a, not a chance. It says, what is this, Exodus 32.2, Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me, which sounds like instructions. So we don't get anything about somebody saying, let's make it a cow, and let's make it a little cow. Is it Ra, a, a male bull? Is it a Isis? Is it the female mother cow? No, we're going to do a calf. Why a calf? It's like bar mitzvah. It's like, like we just have no conversation at all about all we get is Aaron says, bring me the gold. He says to Moshe later when Moshe confronts him about it, I threw it in the fire and I gave this calf. Like, right? So um, that's all we know. So yes, to your point. Aaron, and that's where I wanted to go to Dana to say this is where a parallelism does exist, which is, and we're going to see it in our commentary, Moshe vayakeled the people. So did Aaron, right? So this is a very different vayakeling than happened with Aaron. That's a parallel, right? Aaron convoked the people, and we saw what happened there, right? And Moshe now convokes the people to, to build the Mishkan. It just doesn't sound like there's any leadership in the greater group of people. The, the, we think there is. There's the Zakanim, there's the elders, there's the Nisi'im, the officials, the, I mean the Shotrim, there are the the heads of tribe. There there are other leaders. But are they afraid to speak up or are they We don't know. Hmm. We don't know. That this is what we don't know. We are not told. The rabbis want to blame the mixed multitude that came out with the Israelites from Egypt. (laughs) The rabble that came out of Egypt with the Israelites, they want to blame them for this idea. And that they took over and they threatened the leaders and they said we're stronger than you and we'll kill you. This is all Midrash. We have no, no discussion of where was the leadership. None. But we know they're there because they're bringing lapis lazuli now, right? Now they're bringing the stuff they're supposed to bring for the project they're supposed to make. No, I just don't think it's so difficult to believe that it's a collective kind of unconscious expression. I don't know, maybe you want to correct me on this, but but there's plenty of incidences where you just have, I don't know, mobs who collectively come up with the solution. It's not unheard of historically, and it just seems very credible that this was not something they had to... It was unconscious and deep-seated and expressed um, in a different, and that's a lot different than a sort of top-down, here's what you have, you know, it's almost left to their own needs and instincts. This is what they come up with, and then the Mishkan is left to kind of um, a sort of top-down, um, more transformative uh, instructions. That's what they come up to. But I don't know. Does, does that seem weird to you? I'm sorry. So that, <laughs> you can wait a mark. What the so, um, to you know, to George's, I think it was George. Like, to the the point being, we are not naturally drawn to empty space as what's gonna fill us. Pun intended. It's to your point. The instinct is always a calf. The instinct is what's familiar to us, that we know from, that has comforted us in the past. It doesn't work. That doesn't seem to matter. Does eating ice cream work? No. Do we eat it anyway? Yes. Right? Does online shopping work? No. No, people in here are saying yes. Okay, well, we have a different conversation now. So, right, does it work? No. Do we do it when we're freaked out and anxious and whatever? Yes. So, I think the so to the point, the rabble, it's not hard to imagine they come up with give us what we know from Egypt. That's not so hard to imagine. The Mishkan being something that's going to fulfill the people, that's a stretch. That has to come 
from an authority who knows better than the mob. That's it. Just a question along those lines. Is there evidence that a golden calf was worshipped in Egypt? Like, was that a thing? The cow is, yes, the rock is a cow, is a male bull, and Isis is a cow. So, yes, there's plenty of evidence for cow being a sacred representation of a divinity in Egypt. Yes. All right. So here's the text that we just looked at, right? All right. So we're going to look at Rabbi Aviva Richmond, your text number one on your source sheet. She's one of the people who, in this commentary, is talking about the different ways to switch the narratives. If you read it this way, like Ramban, or if you read it that way, like another commentator, and switch them, blah, blah, blah. But I want to jump to where she synthesizes. The word Vayakel, and he gathered, signifies Moshe taking a leap, deciding that the people will go ahead and build the Mishkan, and afterwards see if God decides to dwell in it. He hopes this gathering will atone for people's gathering upon Aharon to build the golden calf. Remember, the same word is used, but there it's Vayakel Al. They communified on Aaron. When you communify on, it is very different. It is a mob. No, they come up against Aaron. They're gathering against him. Vayakel doesn't come from, from relief, as Ramban would have it, meaning Ramban, who wants to see the Mishkan as atonement for the calf, Ramban switches the order, says there's the calf, then there's the instructions for the Mishkan. So like, God forgave us, and now is giving us a way to atone, is giving us tshuva. That's not what it comes as, if we read it in the order it's in, but from uncertainty, even nervousness, alongside a steadfast insistence that this is the direction the relationship must go. Right? So, instructions, calf, God forgives, God doesn't say build the Mishkan. Nowhere. I had never thought about that before. God doesn't say build it. So, Moshe says, okay, they've been forgiven, and we got these instructions, but God's not saying anything about building the apartment. Right? So, are we really still going to live together? We got the detailed blueprints. I'm not getting anything about calling a contractor. Moshe goes ahead and does it himself, hoping if he builds what God wanted, God will move in. So it comes, says Aviva Richmond, out of a place of nervousness and anxiety that are we really forgiven? Like maybe we made up, but are you really going to come back to bed? Or are you sleeping on the couch? There's a difference. You can make up, but if somebody's sleeping on the couch, right? Okay. The gathering of Vayakel also requires intuition, says Rabbi Aviva Richmond, in the face of the unknown. But this, meaning we don't know if God's going to dwell in it or not. Driven by Moshe's vision rather than by Aaron being swept up in the crowd's chaos. Vayakel expresses human initiative, hopefulness, and a dose of chutzpah. Suddenly, the refrain of the people building each part of the Mishkan, just as God commanded Moshe, which is in 39, is more of twisting God's arm or an expression of desperate hope rather than signifying blind obedience. I love that. Look at what she does here. Just as God commanded Moshe, gets repeated over and over and over. What we don't realize, what we forget, what I read right over the, my 25 years I've been teaching Torah, is that God didn't command it to be done. God said this is how it sh- you should do it, but God never commanded, go ahead, do it. So just as God commanded Moshe, well, sort of, theoretically, <laughs> in theory, but not God hasn't commanded Moshe to 
to go ahead. I just love that. So it's kind of like as God commanded Moshe. Yeah, uh, sorta. Assuming the clothes. Assuming. It's called assuming the clothes and sales, right? Like assuming the clothes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So that's a that's a thing. That's a that's, I think a, that's a thing. business like, term. Yeah, we're gonna you know so so after we're done with that, well, well, what kind of curtains did you want on the house? Like you already so assuming they're the that they're gonna buy the house. Okay, so that is what Moshe is doing for sure. Even though God hasn't explicitly commanded to build the Mishkan after the golden calf, they've decided to go ahead and build anyway. Their work turns out. Is not in vain. Moshe's gamble paid off. God recognized the people's desire and effort and in response decides to dwell among them again. This reading of Parshat Vayakel is more like our own mode of existence, aware of the ways we have failed and not entirely sure of the prospects for repair. We live out of Vayakel that is about taking initiative to create a space where God might inhabit our lives and our world without any confidence that God will. The gathering that results in manifest blessing rather than destruction stems from vision and resolve, doing our best to interpret the residue of God's words and bringing together a community in its full array of people and skills to live out that vision. Maybe after investing so much effort, we too will merit divine blessing. Meanwhile, this Parsha teaches us not to expect God's voice to emerge anytime soon and just get to work. Amen, right? Like a beautiful interpretation of what Vayakeling is for us is what she's saying. Is it we we don't know. All we can do is build and resurface soon the space and see what happens. Don't you wonder what Rambam would have thought of her interpretation? Yeah. Like that's the trouble. That's one thing about this discussion between people who are live three, four hundred years apart. You want to hear the back and forth too. But there were people who would have argued with Ramban in his own time. Scholars argued in their own time about these positions as well. It's interesting. At the beginning of this, we just passed over the the Shabbat thing, and mm-hmm. I was just thinking of this when you were talking about let's get to work. That when God talks about Shabbat, God doesn't say, you shall rest and then you shall work. God says, the first thing is, you shall work. And only when your work is done, at least for the week, shall you rest by imitating me. And the rabbis say, don't read that as instruct, read that as a commandment. Sheshe yamim. And there are some folks who want to use this right now discussing other kinds of Jewish communities. That this is a commandment. Six days shall you work. Then you get to hang out with me on Shabbat. But six days, you're supposed to have a job. Read this as a commandment. Six days a week shall you work. That is not optional. That is a commandment. Just saying, Dave. Uh, just getting, since you're all concerned about the order, the sort of instructions, golden calf, now you do something. I'm not concerned. I'm good. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, no, I just, my experience as a math teacher, like there's a, there's a, there's a limit to how much you can give instructions. Like the real, um, the real uh, work happens with, with the, Third part, you know, you can talk yourself to, you can give the commandments, you can tell them how to build a mishkan, and actually very little of it sinks in until they actually get to work doing the thing, like actively involved themselves. So it seems like a very, uh, I guess I'm speaking for the natural progression uh, side of like, you know, I'm not surprised that, that the just instructions had very little effect on them, and that what's going to have effect now is actually toiling in building the thing. Yep, I like to say that about congregants too. Yeah. We can talk about what KI is all we want till we're blue in the face. Does anybody really care? What what is the impact unless and until people get involved? Yeah. And do the stuff. Vayakel blesses us, says Rabbi Shefa Gold, with the awareness of the true nature of the heart that is unconstrained by fear. This is her interpretation of Nadiv Lev of 
voluntary of heart. Whoever's heart moves them, she's saying, this is an awareness of the true nature of the heart that is unconstrained by fear. Even though the disaster of the golden cab is still a fresh memory, Moses can look out at us and see that our true nature is ruled by a generous heart because everybody comes rushing forward to give gifts. When he calls on the gifts and talents and generosity of the people, he does not do so only for what they come to offer to the communal project. He's calling to pe- the, he's calling the people to know their own gifts and to experience the blessing of a generous heart. When we can experience the flowing and giving heart, freed from the constraints of fear, we begin to know and trust ourselves as if for the first time. We can relax and let go of worries about not having or being enough because the experience of flowing generosity feels effortless and infinite. Vayakil tells us that Moses had to ask the people to stop giving because, in her interpretation, they had become so intoxicated with their experience of generous flow. We are reminded that together we have more than enough to complete the task of making a place for God to dwell among us, between us, and within us. We are reminded that together we have more than enough to complete the task of making place for God to dwell among us, between us, and within us. That is the end of Rabbi Gold's um, piece. Yes, Mark. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Gevura. Uh-huh. You can uh, be overly generous. Nadav. So in the case of Nadav, Moses' son, bringing these strange gifts, ends up dying. So I, I think the importance is not only the generosity of giving, but the reality of the limits, boundaries. Okay. Kibura. Okay. All right. Let's look at Exodus 35, just to remind us. Everyone who excelled in ability came forward. Everyone, men and women whose hearts moved them, right? the people who were gifted and skilled, chokhmat lev, chokhmat ruach, all these different terms. Um, looking at Rabbi Jill Hammer, source number seven in your sheet, on your sheet. This is from a book called Torah Queries. Uh, Melinda, you must order it post-haste. Um, this is querying the Torah, essentially. So looking at uh, Torah from a queer perspective. Rabbi Jill Hammer writes, as the... As the Israelite people build the Mishkan, the shrine they will carry through the wilderness, they rely on their inner wisdom and individual gifts. Although the pattern of the Mishkan comes from the eternal, Dana, to your point, the gifts that make the sanctuary what it is come from the depths of the human heart. The Mishkan is replete with images of love and relationship, images we can use to transform our experience of what Torah is. The Israelites respond not out of obedience as they did at Sinai, but because their hearts speak to them, right? In fact, their hearts respond to them with very specific wisdom. The men who work the metal and gold are called chachamlev, wise-hearted, and the women who spin the wool are named nasaliban otnabechochma, those whose hearts lifted them up in wisdom. An inner sacred truth is coming out of the people through acts of creation. As the tabernacle grows in beauty, every single Israelite becomes part of the process of putting it together. Putting it together. The beauty of the Mishkan comes from the beauty of the generous spirited hearts that design and build it. So too, we can only build sacred community when the wisdom of the individual heart has a recognized place alongside sacred text. Yes. Meaning, right? What builds gorgeousness in community, a sacred with the holiness of a community, is when we recognize that the chokhmat lev of each one of us, right, is just as important as whatever sacred text it is that we have inherited. We agree? Right, we do. This is going to drive me crazy. Okay. All right, let's look at Rabbi Aaron Liebsmuckler. I'm so glad I took the time to edit out all these words that I'm not going to read in class, and then I read them in class. <laughs> um, all right. Do I want to end there? Yeah, we'll end there.
All right. So Rabbi Aaron Leave, Smokler, the last one, she writes, of course, from the perspective of the Svat Emet. She takes the Svat Emet, and then she unpacks the Svat Emet because it's hard for us. So she's unpacking the Svat Emet's commentary on the Parsha. Beautiful as this gush of voluntarism is, its meaning as the anchor of the Mishkan bears exploration. Why must donations be animated by a certain kind of heart? Right? Don't we beat all the time in shul, like, like, just give to her. So do you don't have to like it? Write the check. I don't care if you like it. I don't care if you're happy about it. I don't care if you're going to go home grumbling the whole time. I can't believe she had the nerve to ask. Just write the check. The Jewish way is just write the check. I, you, you don't like it? That That's not charity. It's not charity. It's tzedakah. It's justice. It's what's right. Just do it. But here... All we hear about is Nadiv Lev, Nadiv Lev, Nadiv Lev, Nadiv Lev. Voluntary, voluntary, wanting to, heart is moved, heart is moved, caritas, charity. Why? That's not Jewish. Why must donations be animated by a certain kind of heart? What is the significance of Nadivut Lev in the construction of this structure? The Sfatimet offers a compelling perspective on the essential role of generous heartedness at the center of the Mishkan. Recognizing the juxtaposition of our Mishkan narrative with that of the golden calf, the Sfatimet suggests that we read the two stories together. The idolatrous catastrophe at the foot of Sinai was not erased with pronouncements of divine forgiveness or Moshe's emergence with two new tablets. The relationship between God and the Jewish people, so new and precarious, even without this drama, suffered a tremendous rupture in its wake. But it was not God who needed coaxing back into the relationship, says the Svadimet. It was the people Israel. Though God never ceased to love them, even in the face of grave sin, they ceased to believe that they could be loved. A deep feeling of unworthiness was the lasting effect of their initial betrayal. In a counterintuitive yet empirically effective move, the divine addresses the people's sense of their inadequacy by inviting them through Moshe to experience their adequacy. It does so through a call to service in the Mishkan. Give of yourself. Get out of your own way, your own narrative of shame and insufficiency. Open yourself to something larger than yourself. Be a Nadiv Lave. Offer your heart generously to someone else or something else. Give out love and you will find yourself a new way to receive love. So this is the, um, now you're on page five. For in the words of the Orchot Sadikim, Right? Right. There is nothing in this world that brings a person to love of the world like generosity. Nothing renders a person more available to love from God, the centrality of Nidivut in the Mishkan, that meeting place of God in human beings, stands as enduring the centrality of Nidivut, right, in this business, the meeting place between God and human beings, stands as enduring testimony that generosity of the heart has the power to heal the heart. We get in our own way, suggests the Svatimet. We are the problem, not the divine. We mess up and then we can't let go. We mess up, then we get stuck in shame. And then because we're stuck in shame and feel unlovable, we therefore, right, are not willing to experience love. Go ahead. I just want to say, it seems like it's almost the flip side of the stiff neck thing. Yeah. What, the flip side of a stiff neck is what? Is this heart. This is Nadiv Lev. Is a, is a generous, overflowing heart. Yeah. Okay. I recently, uh, you know, I'm in this women's rabbi cohort, women rabbi, whatever it is, cohort, um, in mindfulness uh, certification with Yael Shai who you hear me uh, talk about a lot. And um, we were just talking in class, Rabbi Lauren Birkin brought to the conversation, loving awareness. That the opposite of Kshayoref, the opposite of the stiff neck that almost got us destroyed, is loving awareness. 
And the loving awareness, where does that rise? In the heart space. That Nadiv Lev is about loving awareness. And awareness is what is the opposite of Kshe'oref. And we learned, it was so exciting, I had to share it with the Va'ad. For those of you who know Hebrew, think in your, I, I usually used to have a whiteboard that, that went with COVID. Um, if you think in your head, those of you who know Hebrew, how do you spell par-o? Pei, resh, ayin, hey. Par-o. Pei, resh, ayin, hey. Read that backwards. And I have to really like have a good imagination. Read that backwards and what do you get? Ha'oref. What is Pharaoh all about? A hardened heart and Oref, about turning this away, about turning the back of the neck, right? The opposite of awareness. A refusal to be aware is Kshe'oref. And when we are stuck in the Oref, we are Paro. And it takes, right, a, a heart that's aware. I hear you saying a heart that's Nadiv Lev, Chochmat Lev. Um, that's what it takes uh, in order to combat the tendency in all of us to uh, be stiff-necked, to be to refuse to be aware of our own lovability, our own forgivability, our our own trust in the loving nature of the universe that we believe in. In makom panoimimeno, there is no place, no space in this universe devoid of the divine essence and love. And our job is to be aware of that and to cultivate a heart and a life where we can be open to that and open to experiencing that. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.